1: Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
0: Hi, I'm Seagal Samuel, sitting in today for
2: Sean Illing. SBF is like the Jordan Belfort of the crypto SBF, SBF, so yeah, he is facing some very serious charges. The
3: early morning hours of November 11th, it all came to an end.
0: S-B-F. You may have heard those initials swirling around recently. They stand for Sam Bankman-Fried, a now former billionaire who's at the center of a huge scandal. This past November, his crypto exchange FTX imploded when he lost at least a billion dollars in client money after covertly transferring the money to a hedge fund he owned. In December, he was arrested on charges of wire fraud, securities fraud, money laundering and more he pled not guilty to all of them. And this month in January, he launched a substack, which so far seems mostly about explaining how this whole crypto debacle happened. But crypto is not why I'm interested in SBF. I'm interested because of the major role he's played in effective altruism, a newish social movement that's all about using reason and evidence to do the most good for the most people. SBF was one of its brightest stars and biggest funders. Yet now, it looks like he's done a lot of bad to a lot of people. He's obliterated the savings of countless customers. He's also screwed over a lot of the charities he'd promised to fund. And for transparency, I should note, in August 2022... Bankman-Fried's Philanthropic Family Foundation, Building a Stronger Future, awarded Vox's Future Perfect a grant for a 2023 reporting project. That project is now on pause. So this is a crucible moment for effective altruism. Its members had spent a lot of time thinking about how to do good in the world. They thought they'd found a pretty great answer. Now they're rethinking their convictions and they're asking themselves, did the logic of effective altruism itself produce this bad outcome? Or was effective altruism just part of the scam? And even more important, can the movement be redeemed? I'm Sigal Samuel, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Holden Karnofsky. He is seen as a leader in the world of effective altruism, or EA for short. And his personal story kind of parallels the story of EA writ large. To give you a preview, it goes something like this. The movement's evolved from one that's about helping people in the here and now, mainly poor people in poor countries with problems like malaria and intestinal parasites to a movement that's pretty interested in the long-term future of humanity, like how to prevent our species from getting wiped out by rogue artificial intelligence. I wanna know, does Holden think effective altruism should go back to its original focus on helping people in the here and now, sort of EA 1.0, or does it still make sense to focus on the long-term stuff that typified EA 2.0? But most of all, Given everything we've learned after the SBF scandal, I want to find out what should EA 3.0 look like? Hi, Holden. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So when the SBF scandal broke on a scale from 1 to 10, how surprised were you? With 1 being, yup, this was entirely foreseeable, and 10 being, I am completely flabbergasted. Oh, my God, how the hell could this possibly have happened?
2: Uh, way on the high end of that scale. I don't know. We, we live in a crazy world. I don't know if I want to quite give it a 10, but I, I wasn't expecting it.
0: Okay. I mean, Effective Altruism is a pretty tight-knit community. You know, there's regular conferences and meetings and conversations. So to what extent did you and SBF know each other? Were you friendly? Did you talk much?
2: I had met SBF, I would say, a handful of times. He was entering into a space that overlapped a lot with our space. So basically what happened was SBF was becoming the funder of a foundation that was funding some of the same causes and some of the same organizations we were. And that creates kind of a natural need to communicate a bit. Sometimes just say, hey, we might both be interested in this grant, things like that. And so we did have periodic meetings by video chat. I met him a couple times at effective altruist events. We certainly weren't friends. It's a professional relationship with occasional conversations.
0: What was your general impression of him? I'm just kind of curious. Was your impression? This is a really scrupulous guy who sincerely wants to do a ton of good for the world or what?
2: My impression of a lot of people is agnostic. I really do try to Reserve judgment. I think interviews are not very reliable signals of someone's character. It's hard to get a real grip on someone, what someone's all about from talking to them. You have to see what they do. Yeah, I don't I don't think I had a really strong read. I mean, I do think there were signs of things to be concerned about with respect to SBF and FTX. He ran this Alameda research company. And there were a number of people who had worked there who left kind of very upset with how things had gone down. And I did hear from some of them what had gone wrong and from their perspective what they were unhappy about. And I did hear about things that really concerned me. Mm -hmm. Also just crypto, I think. I've never been a crypto expert, but... When I saw some of the advertisements for FTX talking about crypto being very good for the world or the Super Bowl ad kind of saying, hey, don't miss out on the next big thing. Mm -hmm. These are things, in hindsight, I kind of wish had registered with me more, but I'm not going to, you know, there were signs, there were things that made me nervous. There were things that made me say, "Okay, I don't really know what the deal is with FTX. I don't really know what the deal is with SBF." I certainly see some reasons that one could be concerned, that one could imagine just like low integrity behavior, less than honest and scrupulous behavior, behavior I'm not comfortable with. At the same time, I just don't think that I knew anything that rose to the level of expecting what happened to happen Mm -hmm. or really being in a position to go around denouncing them or something. Honestly, they weren't someone who I thought of it as my job to vet or to have a really firm view on. um, Now it feels a little bit different in hindsight, but it felt at the time like he was a very famous person going around talking about effective altruism and associating himself with effective altruism. And it didn't really seem like there was much I could do in either direction about that. Some of that does feel regrettable in hindsight.  —
0: SBF kind of grew up on effective altruism. So when he was in college, he had this kind of fateful lunch with Will McCaskill, the moral philosopher who's probably the closest thing that EA has to a leader. And over lunch, SBF said that he wanted to devote his career to animal welfare, actually. But Will McCaskill convinced him he could make a bigger impact— by choosing a career that would just make a ton of money and then donating all that money. So, you know, lo and behold, SBF pursues a career in finance and then crypto, and he starts pouring funding into all of these EA causes. But for you, I have the sense that the path was sort of different. So tell me how you became involved with effective altruism, what your initial feelings were about it. Were there some aspects that kind of weirded you out?
2: Yeah, I I did have a bit of a different path. My basic story is I out of college I worked for a few years in finance worked at a hedge fund worked a couple hedge funds actually. And well, I wanted to give to charity and a bunch of my friends did as well. And we were having conversations and just talking about how we could sort of, in some sense, get the best deal on giving to charity, help the most people for the least money. This is a huge question. This is a lot of work. We're really interested in it. We're much more interested in this than we are in the bond market. And we don't think we can do justice to this question part-time. So we quit our finance jobs. We raised money from our former coworkers. And we started GiveWell in 2007, and no one was using the term effective altruism for years after that. So GiveWell was just trying to solve a practical problem. And in 2012, I think it was, we met Carrie Tuna and Dustin Moskovitz. Dustin is the co-founder of Facebook and Asana, and they were looking to give away their personal fortune of billions of dollars. And they were asking a similar question, hey, how can we give this away and help people as much as possible with it, do the best thing with it? And we said, hey, we're really interested in this question too, but we felt that GiveWell was not the perfect thing for them because GiveWell was really aimed at the kind of person we were. It's like, hey, I want to give a few thousand dollars, and have a few hours to think about it and carrying Dustin and giving away like billions of dollars and had decades to think about it. Mm-hmm. We felt we needed a different kind of organization and workflow to get them the best recommendations. So we started Open Philanthropy originally as a project within GiveWell called GiveWell Labs, and then it spun out. And Open Philanthropy did go in a bit of a different direction and pursued this philosophy of hits-based giving which is this idea that you might try 10 different wacky things with your giving and nine of them might go embarrassingly badly and one of them might go amazingly well and make up for everything else. And so we thought that was an interesting philosophy of giving to try out with Carrie and Dustin, kind of researched the history of philanthropy and I felt surprised by how big some of the successes were, just in terms of the impact on issues like global poverty, feminism. And so that was kind of my trajectory. And as the person running Open Philanthropy, I just became more and more professionally interested in this question of how do you do an outsized amount of good with money or with time? What are issues that are not only important, but neglected and tractable so that you can get really far? I mean, I don't believe I was involved in like coming up with the term effective altruism. It was these folks in Oxford Mm -hmm. who kind of came out with this brand and this name. And that was around 2013. So it's like we were kind of transitioning from GiveWell to Open Philanthropy at that point. And I had met a bunch of these people and thought they were interesting people to talk to. We definitely shared a lot of goals. And so when I learned about effective altruism, I said, hey, doing the most good possible, helping people as much as you can, that's great. That's something I'm interested in. I'm really interested in this. Yeah, there have always been things about effective altruism, the community and the brand and the idea that I've been less than comfortable with, but also no one's perfect. No community is perfect. And I looked at this idea and this community and said, hey, we have an awful lot in common in terms of what we are interested in accomplishing with our lives. And and that's absolutely still the case.
0: I personally see you as a leader in the effective altruism world. Is that fair to say? Would you identify as that or do you see yourself differently?
2: Probably a recurring theme that's going to come up in this conversation is that It's not like there's a CEO of effective altruism who decides what is and what isn't and who is and who isn't. Right. And so any question you ask like that, it's going to depend who you talk to and who you ask, right? Mm -hmm. There's nowhere where I signed up to be an effective altruist. In fact, if someone asks me, you know, are you an effective altruist? Like, I don't always give the same answer. I mean, generally I'd say yes, but sometimes I would say, well, but that doesn't mean I agree with everything that comes out of the effective altruist community. It's kind of a hard question to answer. Certainly it's the case that people who are interested in effective altruism, often are reading what I'm writing and very interested in it and things like that. I mean, that's definitely true.
0: Right. So in terms of the aspects of effective altruism that maybe slightly weirded you out or you were slightly not super comfortable with, one thing that comes to mind for me pretty obviously is utilitarianism. Let's start by establishing this. In the simplest terms to you, what does utilitarianism as an ethical theory entail?
2: So an important thing to lead off with, I'm not a philosopher. I don't have a PhD in philosophy. And one of the first things I noticed about the differences between me and the folks who were kind of coming up with the Effective Altruist name is that they were coming from philosophy tradition. A bunch of them were like actual philosophy professors. Now say, I'm really interested in philosophy. I enjoy it a lot. I've read a bunch of it. I've argued about it a lot, but it's not my area of expertise. So I lead off by basically saying utilitarianism is roughly a theory that doing the most good possible, in some sense taking all the benefit you gave to all the persons in the world, and these persons, because it's not necessarily humans. If you take all the benefit you did for all the persons in the world and add it up, and you do as much good as possible, utilitarianism would be the theory that that is what ethics is. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, if you are wondering whether you did the right thing, that is the same question as if you did the most good. And that I think we can get into this. I think that is different from effective altruism. And it's actually an idea that I don't personally subscribe to.
0: Okay, great. So let's get into that in a second. But I just want to say, you know, like this general idea of try to produce the greatest good for the greatest number, like try to maximize the overall good. At first, that sounds kind of nice, you know, but it can lead to a really weird ends justify the means kind of mentality. There's one famous thought experiment that comes to mind for me, which is If a patient shows up at a hospital, is it maybe the right thing to do to just cut him up and take all his organs? Since by killing him, you can potentially save the lives of five other people who need organs, right? So the utilitarian, if they're pretty hardcore about their utilitarianism, might come and say, yes, cut up that one person because you can save five other people. And I'm just curious, you know, do you think that this style of thinking might have led SBF astray? As in, he might have thought, okay, it's fine to do this alleged fraud because he can make billions of dollars that way and then donate it all to amazing charities.
2: You know, I think the organs example, I do want to say, I think your average utilitarian would give a different answer there. I think your average actual utilitarian would say, actually, no, that's not the way to do the most good. That would create a society where people are afraid to come into a hospital, blah, 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 blah. So I think these debates can get a lot more nuanced and and subtle than just, hey, yeah, utilitarians are into grabbing random people's organs. I mostly don't endorse utilitarianism, but I also don't want to straw person it. So you asked me, could this have motivated SBF? I mean, I think there's a bunch of ideas here that kind of are sitting near each other, but are actually different ideas. So there's utilitarianism, which is the idea that doing the most good is kind of all there is to ethics, or at least that's the very amateur definition I'm giving it. Then there's the ends justify the means, which can mean a few different things, but it might mean that you just kind of believe that you can do arbitrarily defective, deceptive, coercive, nasty things, as long as you kind of worked out the numbers, and they lead to a lot of good. And then I think effective altruism is neither of those. It's a third thing which we can get to. So... I mean, I don't know. I, like, honestly don't know if SPF was motivated by ends just by the means reasoning. I'm really going off of what I'm reading in the media. I don't have special insight. And the media on this is confusing. So, like, got this weird interview where he says ethics is all a sham. But some people think he's just talking about certain flavors of ethics. That weird
0: interview, by the way, was with Vox's Kelsey Piper. And it was conducted, funnily enough,
2: over Twitter DMs. We'll put a link to that in the show notes it certainly looks like the actual ends that he caused to happen didn't justify and don't justify anything and I'd be surprised if anyone would disagree with that it just like doesn't actually look like he did good it looks like he did harm so it looks like on utilitarianism or any other ethical system it wouldn't I don't think there's a story right here where what he did looks good but is it possible that he was saying to himself hey I'm taking these giant risks and it's totally worth it because I'm gonna make all this money and do all these great things with it It is possible that that's what motivated him, and I think that's a problem. I mean, that's something that bothers me. The fact that it's possible alone bothers me.
0: Well, whether or not SBF personally was motivated by utilitarianism to have this ends justify the means mentality, and that's kind of what motivated this alleged fraud, beyond just the SBF question— thinking about EA generally, has EA leaned too hard into utilitarianism? I know that EA and utilitarianism are not one and the same, but I think it's fair to say that there is like a pretty strong flavor of utilitarianism among a lot of top EA thinkers. And I wonder if you think that creates a big risk that members will be kind of likely to apply this philosophy in naive, harmful, ends justify the means kind of ways.
2: I feel like it is a risk, and I wrote a piece about this called EA is about maximization and maximization is perilous, and this was back in September or something, so this was well before any of this stuff came out, and and I had no idea it was coming at that time, and I said in this piece, I said, here's something that makes me nervous. EA is doing the most good. What does that mean? You're maximizing the amount of good. Anytime you're maximizing something, that's just, it's perilous. Life is complicated and there's a lot of different dimensions that we care about. And we're often confused about what we ourselves want. So if you take some thing x and you say i'm going to maximize x you better really hope you have the right x and in fact one of the classic concerns about ai risk is that you might have an ai that is trying to maximize something and it's not quite the right thing and then we get a horrible catastrophe Mm -hmm. and then also maximize what and i think we're all extremely confused about that even the effective altruists who are lifetime philosophy professors i don't think there's a good coherent answer to what we are supposed to be maximizing. So I've talked about doing the most good, talked about doing the most good for our dollar. I think these are compelling, interesting ideas. They're vague ideas. They haven't been totally worked out. If you ask GiveWell, well, hey, what is it exactly that you maximize with my dollar? Was it lives saved? Was it people helped? They'll say kind of, well, it's complicated. We have this metric called the disability adjusted life year. We sort of use that, but we also apply some common sense. It's just kind of hard. So I think that is a dicey situation and I just feel like you're always skating a little close to the edge. It just feels like a current that we all have to swim against and a constant temptation to have trouble that we all have to deal with. And as far as I can tell today, I feel like we are dealing with it. I feel like when I meet actual effective altruists, they don't seem very unjustified the meansy on the whole, with exceptions. They seem like high integrity people. They seem like people who do believe in many different flavors of morality. They don't seem like the kind of people who think you should take someone's organs. (laughs) But we got to watch out. And so I wrote that and then this happened. And then I said, okay, maybe we have to watch out more than I thought we had to watch out.
0: Right. I mean, I am glad you mentioned this blog post because, yeah, that was a couple months before the SPF scandal broke. And I think it was very prescient, especially that part where you say if you're maximizing X, you're asking for trouble by default. EA says it's about maximizing the good, but that's like something we're very conceptually confused about. So this seems like it's going to kind of set us up for trouble. And you say, by default, it seems like a recipe for trouble. Do you kind of feel now that your warning was basically vindicated by what happened with SPF?
2: Do I feel vindicated? Uh, I don't know. I don't feel happy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but do you feel like, damn, I got that right?
2: I feel like the points being made in that post look like pretty right. Look like, hey, we should be concerned about this. I feel more concerned about this than I did when I wrote the post for sure. Like, I feel like I should have listened to that post more than I did or something
0: like you should have listened to your own inner voice?
2: Maybe. I mean, it's hard. There's a lot going on at any given time. And this is something that I've worried about for years. Knowing what I know now, I would have worried about it more. But all the worrying I do has costs because there's many things to worry about. And then there's many things to to not worry about and to move forward with and do to try and help a lot of people.
0: So are you kind of saying that maximize the good is a recipe for disaster?
2: Well, the thing I say in the post is that effective altruism in my opinion, works best with a strong dose of moderation and pluralism. Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe this would be a good time for me to talk about what I see as the difference between utilitarianism and effective altruism. Mm -hmm. They both have this idea of doing as much good as you can. Utilitarianism is a theory, it's a philosophical theory, and it says doing the most good, that's the same thing as ethics. Ethics equals doing the most good. So if you did the most good, you were a good person, and if you didn't, you weren't, or something like that. I think that it's something of that flavor and that's an intellectual view. You can have that view without doing anything. You could be a utilitarian and never give to charity and say, well, I should give to charity, but I just didn't. I'm utilitarian because I think I should. And so that's utilitarianism. And effective altruism is kind of the flip of what I just said, where it says, hey, doing the most good, that's, I don't know, for lack of a better word, cool. <laughs> we should do it, you know? We're gonna take actions to help others as effectively as we can. There's no claim that this is ethics. There's no claim that this is all there is to ethics. How I relate to effective altruism is, hey, doing as much good as you can, that's cool. I like it and I want to do it. That does not mean that is the only thing I want to do, the only thing I care about. It does not mean I think it's the same thing as ethics. So there's lots of times when I try to do the right thing and I'm not just calculating what's going to do the most good being a good friend or telling the truth. These are not things where I'm diagramming out how many utilons is this going to create. These are things I'm trying to do because they're right. So this is the distinction is for me, effective altruism means doing the most good. That's great. That's something we're going to do. We're going to take actual actions. We're going to give to charity. We're going to give to the best charities we can. And there's this whole tangle of abstract philosophical considerations that you do not have to sign on to to do that. Now, this is confusing. And It's not exactly shocking if a bunch of utilitarians are very interested in effective altruism and a bunch of effective altruists are very interested in utilitarianism. So you're going to get these two things. They're going to be hanging out in the same place Mm -hmm. and you are going to face this danger. I'm not terribly surprised that some people look at it and say, hey, that is all I want to do with my life. I think that's a mistake. I think balance is important, but there are people who think that way and those people are going to be drawn into the effective altruist community and I get where that's coming from.
0: The picture that I hear you painting, it kind of sounds like the way you're laying it out, EA and utilitarianism are not coextensive. They're not the same thing. There's maybe a bit of a Venn diagram thing going on here where EA and utilitarianism have a fair bit of overlap, but they're somewhat different. Right. I want to put before you a slightly different possible way to read the EA movement. A few smart guys like Will McCaskill and some others at Oxford especially, who wanted to help the world and give to charity, basically looked around at the philanthropy landscape and thought, you know, this seems kind of dumb. People are donating millions of dollars to their alma maters, like to Harvard or Yale, when obviously that money could do a lot more good if you used it to help, I don't know, poor people in Kenya. And they realized basically that the charity world could use more utilitarian-style thinking. But then they overcorrected and started bringing that utilitarian mindset to everything. And that overcorrection is now more or less EA. What would you say about a reading like that?
2: Uh, You know, I definitely think there are people who take EA too far, but I wouldn't say that EA equals the overcorrection. So I don't know. I mean, I kind of am just sitting here and saying, look, I don't think utilitarianism doing the most good is all there is to ethics. I don't consider myself a utilitarian, though I think it's an interesting framework that has been very thought provoking for me and that I give some weight. I give weight to a bunch of different ethical theories. You know, I'm not a philosophy professor. I don't think the ends justify the means. I have a lot of stuff I care about in my life other than doing the most good. I do tons of stuff that doesn't do the most good. All this is true. And yet, no matter how many things people do with cryptocurrency exchanges or something, I don't think it's ever going to change me from thinking that helping as many people as you can by donating to the most effective charity you can is good, and I want to do it. I feel like I don't want to let things get too complicated here and lose sight of that, and what effective altruism means to me is basically that. It's, hey, let's help a lot of people. Let's be ambitious about helping a lot of people. Let's give to the best charities we can find, not to whatever charity sent us a solicitation in the mail, and gosh, that just seems really right to me, and I really... And passionate about it. And I give to charity every year and give to the best charities we can. And I don't know if I'm going to call that an overcorrection. I feel like this is good. And so I think I'm more in the camp of this is a good idea in moderation. This is a good idea when accompanied by pluralism. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater is kind of where I'm at.
0: From your blog post about EA and maximizing, it sounds like you would like to see EA embrace a little more of the common sense, moral rules, deontology vibe, right? It seems like you would like to see more moral pluralism, if I could put it that way, a little bit more embrace of other moral theories, not only utilitarianism. Is that fair to say?
2: I do like to see that. I do want to emphasize, I don't think I'm alone here. I don't think that Mm -hmm. everyone who's excited about effective altruism is a full-on utilitarian except for me. I think the attitude I'm describing is actually fairly common. And I think a lot of the people I've met are, are in a similar boat to me. Hey, let's help lots of people. That would be great. Let's cut back on some of the most dangerous issues facing humanity. That would be great. Let's not only donate, let's think about how we're using careers. That would be great too. I would like to see it. I do like to see it. But yes, I think I would like to see more of it. And it is something I've been thinking about is, is there a way to encourage or to just make a better intellectual case for pluralism and moderation? Because I think it's not just something that you get by asking for it.
0: Is it more important to help struggling people right now or to protect the long-term future of the human species? For a big philanthropic organization like the one Holden runs, This is more than just a theoretical question. I'll ask him where he comes down on this issue of long-termism after a quick break.
3: Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city save the city from what exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They've used Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth. Whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point of sale system. Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/box. You can go to shopify.com/box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. shopify.com/box
1: Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
0: So, when you started out in your career, you were a lot more focused on very present-day problems like global poverty, global health, you know, the classic EA concerns. But then EA sort of had a pivot towards long-termism, which more or less is the idea that we should really, really prioritize positively influencing the long-term future of humanity thousands, even millions of years from now. Tell me the story of how you gradually became more convinced of long-termism.
2: I, I want to draw some more fine-grained distinctions here. Sure. Long-termism, yeah, I think has been expressed in a few different ways, but it tends to emphasize the importance of future generations, generations other than this one. There's a separate idea of just like, I don't know what to call it, like catastrophic risk reduction. So there's a separate idea that just says, hey, you know what? There are some risks facing humanity that are really big that we really got to be paying more attention to. One of them is climate change. One of them is pandemics. So COVID-19 was obviously an enormous tragedy that was one of the biggest world-changing events you can imagine. I worry that as biotechnology advances and gets cheaper and easier to use, it could get easier for people to design viruses that are worse than COVID-19, that these could be done in a military context and could end up leaking out because I think the biosafety in these programs can be surprisingly terrible. Then there's AI, and I've talked about AI and written about AI quite a bit. I think that the dangers of certain developments, certain kinds of AI that you could easily imagine being developed and we have no idea when they will be are vastly underappreciated in my view. You could hold the view that like AI risk and bio risk are huge issues that we should be paying more attention to without holding the view that we need to be obsessed with future generations. You could also hold the view that we should consider future generations to contain most of the ethical value of the world without agreeing that bio-risk and AI risk are the biggest risks to focus on. So I would say that I'm currently more sold on bio-risk and AI risk as just things that We've got to be paying more attention to, no matter what your philosophical orientation. I'm more sold on that than I am on long-termism, but I am somewhat sold on both. I've always kind of thought, hey, future generations matter. Future people are people, and we should care about what happens to the future. I mean, that just seems like something I've always believed. And I've always been skeptical of claims that go further than that and might say something like, well, the value of future generations, and in particular, the value of as many people as possible getting to exist, is so vast that it just completely trumps everything else and you shouldn't even think about other ways to help people. Yeah, That's a claim that I've never really been on board with and I'm still not on board with.
0: So I'm glad you're bringing that up because this ties back to our earlier conversation about utilitarianism. I feel like that can be tricky enough when you're just looking at the world today, but when you add in the long-term future, it can just really go bonkers, right? And this is one of the common critiques of long-termism, that it's all about maximizing overall expected value, but that can lead you to pretty ludicrous conclusions. Yep. So it sounds like that freaks you out and you feel like that might be going astray. Is that right?
2: Basically, yes. I think it can get a little subtle. I think if I knew for sure exactly what was going on and I had like perfect knowledge of everything, you know, that might be one thing. But I think in the real world to go from this philosophical argument to like, Therefore, you should be kind of ignoring all these real-world problems and focusing entirely on things that might affect the long-term future. Yeah, I don't buy that argument for a number of reasons. If it were not the case that AI risk and bi and other things like climate change looked like such a potential big deal this century, if it were the case that really all we could do about the long-run future was this incredibly speculative stuff reaching out billions of years and trying to figure out what's going to happen then. I think I would just say like this isn't very productive from a practical point of view. We're not going to get much done here. Mm-hmm. It's better to like do things we can do and maybe learn about the world as we do them. So I think there's a lot of reasons that I wouldn't be into that. I also think that the rabbit hole goes deeper, so this is a thing that you can keep going down this road. So you can say, well, you know, if you want to maximize your expected value, you should really focus on the people in the future, but What about people in other parts of the multiverse? What about people in other parts of an infinite universe (laughs) who you might be able to affect through your actions being correlated with theirs through various theoretical mechanisms tied to some of these like non-causal decision theories I mentioned? What about the fact that if there's actually infinite people in the universe that all of this stuff is undefined and you can't take an expected value over anything that there can't really be an ethical basis for doing one thing or another at all, more or less, unless you take on some other weird assumptions in your ethical system that break a bunch of other stuff and cause a bunch of other problems. I actually could go on like this for like quite a long time. This is kind of what I meant when I said,
0: if you go further along this line of thinking, it just goes really bonkers. Yeah. So without going into infinite worlds and all of that fun craziness, Right. just to like really show that this is a very concrete issue you're probably dealing with every day when you show up at work. This comes up in your work at Open Philanthropy because you guys have millions of dollars to give away. You have to decide what to spend it on. And if you say, for example, I think there's a 0.0001% chance trillions of future humans will never get to exist because rogue AI wipes out all of humanity. Well, then if you're just focused on maximizing expected value you might decide to just spend all your money on AI safety and zero dollars on helping people who are poor today. But like that seems weird. Yes. So at OpenFill, you guys use a method that's called worldview diversification to decide how to divvy up money to different causes. So tell me how worldview diversification works.
2: Yeah. I mean, the basic idea of worldview diversification is that it kind of comes back to this vagueness of the question, what does it mean to do the most good? So we're going to try and do the most good with our money. And on one hand, I think there are times when it looks fairly clear that some things do more good than others. Giving to the Against Malaria Foundation to distribute anti-malarial bed nets in Africa so that fewer children die of malaria, fewer people get sick, versus giving to my alma mater, Harvard. I think that the malaria one does more good. And I, I don't feel very conflicted about that. I think that's a call I'm fine to make. And then, though, if you want to get all the way into it, what does it mean to do the most good? It can get very complicated and can get very hairy. And you start to have these different ways of looking at the questions. So that's where the term worldviews comes in. I call them worldviews. They're intellectual frameworks that have radically different conclusions. So you could have an intellectual framework that says, what we're about here is we're about estimating the number of utility translated benefits to people and maximizing that. And if you make your best guess at a bunch of probabilities, the result is going to be that you should put like every dime into reducing existential risk and you should not give anything to helping people in poverty. And then there's like another worldview that says kind of I don't really reason by drawing out expected value diagrams and putting best guess probabilities on everything and using this technique that I've called Bayesian mindset. That's not how I reason. And all this stuff is very speculative, and I don't trust it. And I'm actually interested in doing something that's more robust, more evidence-backed, within that trying to maximize and do as much good as I can to help the most people possible, but I'm restricting myself to things that I pretty much understand and pretty much have evidence behind them. And then there's other worldviews that can come in and you could say, well, but I also feel really strongly that animals should be getting some kind of competitive consideration to humans in terms of how much we should care about them. That might lead you to say you should put all your money into, for example, corporate campaigns to help ensure that animals are treated better on factory farms or that we hopefully eventually get rid of factory farming. Open Philanthropy does a ton of work on that. So you have these different worldviews. It's like if you take this set of assumptions or this framework or this way of thinking, it'll tell you to put all your money over here. If you take this other way of thinking, it'll tell you to put all your money over there. And to me, the best metaphor is it feels like it's these different Holdens arguing with each other. There's these different (laughs) pieces of myself that are all trying to reach a deal. And in my view, a very natural way to handle that kind of dispute. If you have a bunch of different people who think in completely different ways, they're not speaking the same language. They're not using the same numbers. They don't even agree on what the numbers mean. What do you do? You divide up the resources. You say, hey, there's three of you. Maybe you each get a third or maybe you say, hey, there's three of you. One of you is making more sense to me. And so maybe one of them gets 60 percent and two of them each get 20 percent. But you divide it up Mm -hmm. and then you have these different worldviews that have their own budgets. And so it's like you could have the philosophy-driven, Bayesian mindset bucket, and you could have the practical, evidence-driven, human-focused bucket, and they're each maximizing how to do the good the way that they do it, the best way that they can. They could even conceptually make trades with each other or something like that. That's worldview diversification is just the choice to say, hey, we're not going to be stuck with one worldview and put all the money into one kind of thing. We're going to take these different worldviews that tempt us and divide us and divide up the money between them. I should also say... I think this is kind of a naive, obvious thing to do when you have different parts of yourself arguing with each other. Mm -hmm. Then there's a bunch of arguments that it's actually wrong and you actually should just put all the money into one thing and maximize expected value. And then there's a bunch of arguments against that. And that goes down a very deep rabbit hole. But my view is actually that the first intuitive thing is about as good as anyone's come up with.
0: Personally, I'm very glad that open philanthropy does worldview diversification. It just seems wise to kind of hedge your bets intellectually that way and to not become... So single minded about just maximizing one thing, whether that's animal welfare or future people coming to be alive in millions of years or whatever. And this has me just thinking about how in EA circles, there's this fear that's commonly talked about the idea that we'll inadvertently design. AI that is a single-minded optimizing machine mm-hmm. and doing whatever it takes to achieve a goal, but in a way that's not necessarily aligned with values that we approve of. Yep. And so the like paradigmatic funny example here is we design an AI and we say, your one function is to make as many paper clips as possible. We want to maximize the number of paperclips. And we think like, okay, cool. That's a fine goal. AI will do a fine job of that. But then the AI doesn't have our human values. It's just an AI programmed to do one thing. And so it goes and does crazy stuff to get as many paperclips as possible. And that could mean colonizing the world and the whole universe to gather as much matter as possible and turn all matter, including people, into paperclips, right? Like, it could really go crazy. So that's just a bit of a tongue-in-cheek example. But... I think this core fear that you hear a lot in EA about a way that AI could go really wrong if it's a single minded optimizing machine. Do you think that some effective altruists have basically become the thing that they're scared AI will be single minded optimizing machines?
2: It's interesting. I mean, it's an interesting kind of thought experiment. And I think. It may be a bit of projection. Like there might be some people in effective altruism who kind of are trying to turn themselves from humans into ruthless maximizers of something. And then maybe imagining an AI would do the same thing. I should say, I mean, my story about AI risk is like kind of pointed in a similar direction. It's a very different flavor. I would just say, hey, like, Humans being as powerful as we are and being able to develop the technologies we do has been a little bit of rough news for other animals. We've driven a lot of other species extinct, not because we're like single-mindedly trying to maximize the amount of, I don't know, babies we have or sugar that we eat, but just because we're powerful and there's things that we want and we want those things more than we want to be nice to the animals a lot of the time. And I think we should worry about AI being the same with respect to us that I don't think you need some kind of weird God in a box to have a problem with AI. I've written about how if you just take it down a notch, just assume you built an AI that's basically able to do what a human could do. There's some different strengths and weaknesses, but the same basic idea, do what a human could do then just like it's a little bit different just wants different things has different values it doesn't have the same ethical rules that we have if you imagine that that's plenty scary because if you just had something like that that could make copies of itself that alone you could get disaster from that you do not need this weird alien psychology that's maximizing paperclips you just need to think of it as once there's what you could call a second advanced species on earth Mm -hmm. another set of minds that is able to build its own technology, like humans are, but is different from humans, wants different things from humans, we could actually be in a lot of trouble there and and you don't need these exotic psychologies to get the problem.
0: I'm glad you used the word projection in terms of the question of whether EAs have maybe projected onto AI uh, a little bit of what they themselves might be doing. I think there might be a little grain of truth there.
2: I think in some cases, and I think not in other cases, Mm -hmm. but I think in some cases, yeah, it could be happening.
0: In the wake of the SBF scandal, a huge question hanging over effective altruism is this. What will the future of this movement look like? And that's exactly what I'll ask Holden after one last quick break. Let's think about this. What reforms do you want to see in EA, if any? What would it look like for EA to seriously engage with these critiques we've been talking about and then use them to become more sound, both as a philosophy and as a social movement?
2: So it can be a little hard to talk about reforms again because it's not like a top-down thing. Right. There aren't existing rules or like place where you sign up and become a member. And so it's hard to kind of talk about changing them. But I guess a couple things I've thought. I mean, one is I definitely upgraded my sense of how concerned we should be about the proximity of these ideas, about the idea of, hey, it's cool to do a lot of good. And then the idea of, hey, Anything can be justified as long as you are reducing the probability of these like wild events that we talk about. Mm-hmm. These are two separate ideas. I'm into the first one, not into the second one. But it's not shocking that the two, you know, they're standing next to each other and it can be a problem. It's not Really obvious what to do about that, but I think there are some things. One is I do think there could be more effort to actually just make the intellectual case. And a lot of people who are excited about effective altruism, they're not going to respond to people kind of saying, Hey, I'm offended, please change. They're going to respond to arguments. And I actually think the arguments are there. I think if you go further down the rabbit hole, it's like this first blush, you know, Hey, utilitarianism, let's do the most good. That means it's all about the future generations. If you keep going down the rabbit hole, I think you can make a pretty good case for coming out the other end and saying we are too confused and uncertain and lost to be all in on this framework. And actually doing some kind of moral parliament or worldview diversification is probably the thing to do actually on more than one line of argument and on a bunch of different grounds. So I think there could be more effort put into that than there has been. Unfortunately, the philosophy literature on moral uncertainty is pretty small. There hasn't been a ton written about it, and I think there could be more written about it. So I think that's something I'd like to see more of.
0: I want to pick up on that because for me personally, I see a little bit of tension between two things I've seen from you. On the one hand, you know, you sound like you really have this embrace of moral pluralism and you... I think correctly, want to see different moral theories taken seriously, appreciated for the moral intuitions that are actually genuinely important, maybe, and they're capturing something real. We should pay attention. And you are well aware of and have pointed out and written about how a view that encourages us to maximize just one thing exclusively can be really risky and perilous. I've also seen you write about how you're bothered by ethics that's based on common sense intuitions and societal norms, because that does have a terrible track record. Like, people used to think that slavery was ethically fine. And so you have developed this idea of future-proof ethics, so a theory that'll stand the test of time so that we're acting now in ways that people would still approve of in, let's say, 100, 200 years. But to me, that requires some clear moral rules or some systemization. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me like any systemizing moral theory, whether it's utilitarianism or something else, is going to encourage us to maximize one thing exclusively. And if we want to not get into trouble with that, we maybe have to give up on the seductive dream of finding one tidy rule or clear-cut thing that we're always just optimizing for. And I wonder if you feel ready to bite that bullet.
2: Well, you're saying that, you know, I've got contradictions and tensions, and that's exactly how I'd put it. And that's, (laughs) that's the situation. I think that I simultaneously am saying to myself, hey, on one hand... I think that going down this track of being all in on utilitarianism and being a super maximizer is really dangerous. And on the other hand, just going along with what everyone around me is saying and what's kind of in to think about what's right also looks horrific. It looks horrible. Historically, it looks like such a terrible move. So... I actually do vibe the goal of utilitarianism as a lot of people practice it, which is to, hey, let's be kind of scientific about it. Let's be systematic about it. Let's get ahead of the curve. Let's run some numbers. Let's think of the things that we'll think of later and think of the things that we would think of if we had more reflection and wisdom. And that leads you down a sciency maximizing direction. And then there's the moderation that leads you down a, hey, let's not get too carried away direction. And you're like, pick one. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to pick one. It's both. <laughs> I think utilitarianism has a lot to recommend it. I think it's a compelling philosophy. And I think there's a lot good about it. I think I've become more reasonable and smarter about morality and more thoughtful about morality because of my discussions with utilitarians and my consideration of utilitarianism. And there is part of me that is utilitarian for sure. So I think that's just what it is. I mean, what I am trying to do myself and what I would love to make arguments to other people interested in effective altruism to do is to just live with that tension and just say, look, I'm a human being. I've got multiple voices arguing in my head all the time. I'm going to live with that. And we're going to get along the way that any group gets along. We're going to try not to do anything that any one part of me totally hates too much. And we're going to try to do all the things that any one part of me is super excited about, as long as they're not totally unacceptable to the other parts. And just like a family or a team, that's how we're going to get through life. So I I think that is actually how I think of it.
0: I mean, I think another way to read this ambivalence is to read it as an indicator that this whole endeavor of sciency maximizing for ethics is kind of a category mistake, and that this sort of systematizing sciency language of making something future proof in terms of ethics really relies on a kind of moral realism, right? It's the idea that there are objective moral truths. And
2: that's not really where I'm at for what it's worth. Okay. I've tried to lay out a vision for moral progress that doesn't rely on moral realism. So I'm personally not a moral realist. I don't think they're objective moral truths. And yet, when you say to me, hey, was it just fine and the same? For example, the way that homosexuality used to be treated in society, was that fine and the same as now? And I'm like, no, now is better. And you're like, what do you mean by better? Is it objective moral truth? I'm like, no, but it's better. The future proof idea is me trying to square that circle and say, actually, you don't have to believe in objective moral truths to believe in moral progress. The idea of future-proof ethics is kind of trying to get ahead of what we would think if we were wiser and did more reflection, which is different from finding an objective moral truth.
0: I mean, I think personally, the way I square the circle is to just acknowledge that the very notion of moral progress and like what is morality is to some degree historically contingent, culturally conditioned. And I'm fine with that, but I know that your mileage may vary.
2: Yeah, I don't think it's a category error. I don't think it's worthless. I don't think it's futile to talk about getting ahead of the moral curve. I just don't want to go crazy and go all in on it. And that's just me living with the contradictions. Another analogy would be like in baseball, there was kind of a moment where people went from evaluating players by watching them play to evaluating them by crunching a bunch of numbers. And what was the right answer? And it's just like the right answer was always both today's baseball teams are just using both. And so I think that's where I'm at is I'm just like, I don't want to just stick with conventional morality. I don't, and I don't want to reject utilitarianism overall. I think it has insights and things to offer us. And I don't want to be all in on it until we have the full truth and full confidence. We're just going to have to mix our systems and put them together in one place and live with that.
0: I do want to get to some other more concrete questions here about the future of EA. One of them is about funding. I think that's a pretty important one. A bunch of EA's critics had warned that the movement's funding needs to be more decentralized. I know that the Oxford scholar Carla Kramer, for example, she argued that the movement should allow for more bottom-up control over how the funding is distributed and actively fund critical work. Do you agree that EA needs more of that?
2: I'm very in favor of critical work of EA being welcomed and accepted and funded. And I know there's a lot of jokes about EA's being sort of obsessed with being criticized and you know, and loving to be criticized, and I think that those jokes are sort of true. But I mean, I think that's a good thing. I think it's endearing, so I, I support that. I think when it comes to diversifying funding, I think it would be a lot better if EA had more diverse funding. And it's been unhealthy for Open Philanthropy to have such a large share of the funding for some of the causes that effective altruists work on. It's not a great situation. I'm not sure exactly what to do about it, so. FTX, actually, the FTX Foundation, run by people who, as far as I know, and I have no particular reason to think were involved in the FTX company practices, they had a re program. Mm-hmm. So they were actually taking a large number of people who were not at the foundation and saying, hey, you can give away our money for us. And in some ways, that's a diversifying move. But does that really change the power dynamics? Does that really spread it out? And it all is still coming from the one source. And so I'm not sure I know literally how to... Like I think it's bad. I think it's bad that there's one mm-hmm. <laughs> funder that has so much of the money. I'm not sure that I have a solution in front of me, and I think that is kind of a tough situation. I think the best solution would be uh, if there's any billionaires listening, you know, hey, there's a lot of great work that I think could use more funding, and if there were more people providing a lot of the funding, there would be less pressure point on anyone.
0: I mean, I think another way into this is talking about different kinds of diversity here and cultivating that even within these organizations that do have currently a lot of the money and power. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that so far EA has been largely a white men with fancy college degrees kind of space. And so one of the structural reforms that's been proposed for EA is to cultivate more intellectual diversity and to really democratize how the ideas get evaluated instead of just relying on this very over-centralized kind of power structure where a few very elite and unrepresentative voices are the ones that get heard. Do you think that that's on point?
2: Well, I definitely think it would be good for EA to be moving in a more diverse direction, and there are a lot of efforts to do that, and I want them to continue. And we're not where we wanna be on diversity, and I wanna see that get better. It is going to be tough to avoid a fundamental dynamic that at the end of the day, there's a small number of people with a lot of money, and it's their money, and they're the ones deciding where the money goes.
0: To sort of make this a little bit more concrete and think about what it could look like in practice to take this on board, so the scholars Carla Kramer and Luke Kemp have thought about this, and they've advocated for effective altruists to use maybe more deliberative styles of decision-making, so something like citizens' assemblies, where you get a group of randomly selected citizens, you present them with facts, they debate, and they arrive at a decision together. We've already seen that kind of assembly in the context of deciding climate policy and abortion policy— Would you like to see E.A. be democratic in a similar way?
2: I definitely think it's an interesting thing to experiment with, and I think there could be promise there. I think going from idea to practice is hard, and I think you're going to have all kinds of questions about where does this bottom out? Who is setting the rules of the discourse? Because we have something where everyone gets a voice, and it is representative, and that's our government. That's our democracy. And so if you aren't wanting to send your money there and having it get spent the way it gets spent there, you're going to have to make some kind of distinction that we're doing this based on a different set of values, a different mission, a different set of people. Who are those people? Who counts? Who's voting on where the money goes? How are they voting? Who gets how many votes? How long are they deliberating? And the people structuring that are going to have a lot of power in a way that may be a little hard to understand. And it is still all going to trace back to the people who have that money and choose to part with it. So I think the challenges are there, but I think it's also interesting and, and there could be experiments in that direction
0: you know, EA isn't just a pure philosophy in the ivory tower, even though we've spent a lot of time talking about utilitarianism, etc. It's also, I would say, an ideology. It's a social movement. It's a subculture. It's an identity. What do you want to say to the many young, effective altruists who kind of built their whole identities around EA in some cases and really took EA ideas as gospel and are now feeling maybe kind of let down and shaken in their faith (laughs) post-SBF.
2: Well, I'm not really a fan of taking ideas as gospel. I really wouldn't be happy with myself or with others in EA kind of taking anything about EA on faith what was the other term you used? There's something else that I hope people aren't doing. Uh, oh, building their whole identity around it.
0: You see that, though, right? Uh, I do. You I see do. that
2: among especially some young... Yeah, I think it's an issue, and, and I try to push back against it, and I'll try and do so now. I mean, I think I'll say, in, in closing, I'll say that you don't have to build your whole identity around EA in order to do an enormous amount of good, in order to be extremely excited about effective altruist ideas. If you can be basically a normal person in most respects, you have a lot going on in your life, you have a lot that you care about, and you have a job, and you've work about as hard as as a lot of people work at their jobs. You know, I'm not trying to do a lot of good by working especially hard or by being more self-sacrificing than other people. And it's like, if you can just clear that first hurdle and be kind of a multi-dimensional, healthy human being who's just working hard the way a lot of people work hard, you can do a huge amount of good. You can help a huge amount of people. And then that next step, where you build your whole identity around it. You get rid of everything else in your life. You say this is all that matters and you'll do anything that I don't think is adding very much. It may be adding negative, maybe making things worse Mm -hmm. by tempting people toward the sort of behavior that we're worried about. You know, I do have concerns about people working too hard, stretching too hard, making it their whole identity, burning out, going the opposite direction. And I do think you could do an enormous amount of good without doing any of that and adding all that dicey stuff on, getting you very marginal gains and and very, in my opinion, very possibly getting you negative results. So you work hard and you do your best in the way that a lot of people do their best, It's a very unjust world out there, and you can do a lot of good. You can help a lot of people, and I think that is an idea that is core to effective altruism. It is really important, and that I think, ultimately, I hope to see that idea gain in standing, not fall in standing as time goes on.
0: My one gripe with that would be, (laughs) I don't know if it's quite fair to say that's the core idea to effective altruism, because it's not just, and we've talked about this, but it's not just the simple phrasing of, do a lot of good. That's cool. It's do the most good possible. And I suspect that that being built into the foundations might be what drives a lot of particularly young idealistic people to feel like they need to push it, push it, push it to the max, right? Because push it to the max is built into the DNA of the ideology. Whereas what I actually hear you saying is something far more nuanced. I like that nuance and that nuance is something I would hope to see prevail.
2: Well, I would say do the most good possible. I think is a good idea in moderation. (laughs) That might sound kind of like a country, but it's similar to, you know, running a faster time is better, but you can do that in moderation. You can care about other things at the same time. I do think there is a ton of value to coming at doing good with a mindset of finding the way to do the most good I can with the resources I have. I think that brings a ton of value compared to just trying to do some good. But then doing that in moderation, I think does get you most of the gains and is ultimately where I think the most healthy place to be is. And probably in my guess, probably the way to do the most good in the end, too.
0: Thank you, Holden. I really appreciate you being in this conversation with me. It's really great to get to talk about these ideas with you.
2: Cool. Yeah, likewise. It was a great conversation. Thanks for having me on.
0: Eric Janikus is our producer, Amy Drostowska is our editor, Patrick Boyd engineered this episode, Alex Overington wrote our theme music, and A.M. Hall is the boss. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at vox.com. And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends. Send it to all the people in your life who are trying to find the best way to do good in the world. You got people in your life like that, right? I'm Seagal Samuel. I write about artificial intelligence and other big, scary things on Vox.com. Feel free to check me out there. Sean Illing will be back on Thursday with a new episode of The Gray Area. Listen and subscribe.